innovation and ideas come from many areas from a product side that's got to come from the outside in that's got to come from their end using customers the police officer emp that's who we have to listen to the uniformer insights and interviews into the people and companies that drive the markets for uniforms image apparel and public safety equipment the uniformer is a production of the north american association of uniform manufacturers and distributors the n-a-u-m-d i'm rick levine welcome to another edition of the uniformer i am very excited to be sitting here today with david lurio the ceo of elbico a company that I've been aware of for many decades, as I'm sure many of you have, if you're involved in the public safety law enforcement uh, area of our industry um, and haven't heard of Elbico, then you are probably not involved in our industry. (laughs) Uh, Welcome, David. Thanks, Rick. It's good talking to you. What is it, as the CEO, um, do you do throughout the day to run a company like Elbico? That's a, a common question I'm asked, and my answer that I developed over the years and decades is my job as CEO of Elbico is to get up every day with a chamois cloth and polish that Elbico brand, and it's kind of a pat response, but it really keeps me, that's my focus, is the Elbico brand is a powerful, iconic brand, and one of my main jobs is in maintaining that iconic value of that Elbico brand. Now, certainly beneath that is a lot going on, but that that's my high-level response. I, I, I like that answer. And it has a special resonance because you've been, the Lurios have been keepers of that brand, um, actually, for quite a long time. When when was the company established and which of your, uh, your grand uh, relative is responsible for this? Yeah, it's a, it's a great American, you know, dream achieving the American dream. My ancestors came over from Lithuania, in that area, in the late 1800s, and I won't get too much into the, the horse and buggy stages, but the Elbico was begun in 1907, incorporated in 1907, in Reading, Pennsylvania, begun by my great great grandfather four generations ago. At that time, he called up his son, my great-grandfather on my dad's side, who was in the Mexican oil fields. He was 21, came up, ran the business. Anyway, I won't take the whole 114 years of the, of the company history, but what really resonates is, and this shows the continuity of private ownership in the family, in the 114 years of doing business, I am the third president of the company. <laughs> That's pretty unusual. I'm fourth generation, the third president in the history of the company. And that really is humbling to me on so many levels. But to be able to carry on the tradition, uh, continue to employ people, continue to build value in that brand, it's, it's pretty neat. That's remarkable. And, and as you're pointing out, so unusual because... You know, the tenure, uh, even for a family business of uh, the president and the leadership team, you know, is not typically that stretch of time. And you've known the other two presidents intimately. 
right? Do you have memories of, of talking to grandpa about the business? I do. I, I think at that point, he, he actually was, he passed in 1964. So I don't recall a lot of deep discussions about business. I was probably more involved in playing with toys at that point than talking business. But an interesting statistic, Rick, I read that of third generation businesses, only less than 10% of businesses pass on successfully through third generation. What that statistic is for fourth generation, I don't know, but I think it's pretty definitely single digits and pretty low. Yeah. Well, congratulations. That is, that is extraordinary. And so after having the head, the torch passed, I can see why you, in thinking about, well, what is it that you do throughout the day? You know, you're, you're especially interested in maintaining what, you know, the family legacy has built. And so when you say polish the brand, I mean, so what are a few examples, David, of what you, you know, you might, you might do to polish the brand uh, throughout the week or the year? Well, with all that I've just said about the legacy and the iconic brand is I have a, another saying is that the good news is that Opico has been in business 114 years. The bad business is we've been in business that long. And that what that means is you can't be complacent. You can't keep doing the same thing we've always done. I think that would be the road to extinction. So I wanted to state that, you know, I, I really focus my time and energy as CEO in three main areas. And one is driving innovation throughout the organization, be it through processes or be it through product innovation development. Second phase area is business and strategic development, finding new opportunities to continue to grow our business, find new opportunities. And three, and this is actually my favorite one. I don't have many of these, these sayings left to me, but I, I read a book that talked about managing by walking. I don't know if you've heard that, but it's one of my favorite sayings. And what that really means is really I get out of my office and I really try to take time a couple days a week is to walk the aisles. And that would mean going to my distribution facility, going to my customer service department, going to the sewing area, and informally interacting with our employees. And it's amazing. I always find how much I learn when I actually go out to the office and, and walk by managing, right? Walking, talking to people in an informal situation and really, that's when you really find out what's going on in, in one's company. And I find that I get a lot of ideas. I don't know it all. <clears throat> I find that I know less as I get older and be in, in this position. But that's, that's a vital area of what I do. Uh, I'm smiling. You know, people can't see that on the podcast, but I'm smiling and nodding along with you because I just uh, love uh, the concept of leadership um, involving lifelong learning, and that cannot be understated. There's just too many ills in corporations. There's too many um, uh, false positives that leadership experiences because they assume that they already have the answer, that they already that their instinct is correct. And I love you just, you know, talking about the managing by walking and really what that's saying is I'm just, I'm, I'm out and I'm talking to people and, and I, and that you consider that an important ingredient 
as you know, president CEO of the company is to go out and because you're not going to be able to turn over rocks, right? If if right. part of our job as leaders is to turn over rocks, is to get rid of friction at wherever it can be found, and then you know you're the one that's in a position to get rid of friction. Okay, I hear you, Mary. I hear you, Bob. That should be running smoother. So I'm so glad that I got to talk to you about this today, so that you know you could. Uh, express the nuance. Am I saying it back right? Is that kind of how it, it goes? It really is. You know, people begin talking and express frustration, and I ask and I ask questions, and I hopefully I can find solutions. It'll help find solutions. You know, one of the things I wanted to, to mention is I've again been in this. I didn't mention this, but I've been in the business thirty six years now. Can't believe it. I've been president since two thousand and one, and I have to say that. The road to becoming a more impactful, productive leader, right, manager to a leader, has taken me a long time. And uh, I think when I learned that I didn't know everything, and that really was a epiphany for for me in becoming a more productive CEO and, and leading this company and and dealing with people. Do you find that um, you know Starbucks likes to pride itself on saying how? Often the new drinks, the new beverages come from one store location, uh, creating something relatively unique for the clientele in that particular area. And then it just it just starts bubbling up. Excuse the pun on it being a liquid, but uh, it just starts, you know, it, it expands. And then a couple of stores are doing it and whatnot. Do you find that some of the innovation is is truly driven from uh, the trenches of El Bico? Or how, how, how do you guys come up with innovation as a 114-year-old company? Well, you, you know, it's really innovation and ideas come from many areas of, of inspiration. But I would say from a product side, that's got to come from the outside in. That's got to come from their end-using customers, the police officer, the EMT. That's who we have to listen to. And that's who ultimately that that's ultimately our customer is is the police officer, the EMT individual, the fire safety individual. If you listen and we got to tap in and, and really listen, we'll understand what the needs or frustrations are. It's similar to, to my position in walking the aisles. We have to walk the mile, right? We have to get out in the field and walk and listen. And really from that comes inspiration for products. Then we take those inspirations back, those potential problem, those problems and potential solutions. And this is really one of the things that I enjoy most about my job is I drive a lot of the product innovation and development in the company. And I really get juice getting up every day and in a collaborative effort dealing with really, really skilled technical people and product people and coming up with concepts. Now, with that being said, we also want to listen to our dealer base. They also have great insights into issues, but from a different perspective, I would think. Well, uh, similarly, they're talking to our ultimate end user for all of us and hearing from the departments and, you know, perhaps specking programs and items, uh, garments and equipment based on what they're hearing from that particular department. So I imagine it does flow, you know, both directions that it does. your your uh, meeting 
um, and you know, uh, with the end users and customer services listening to the end users, um, and then so are the dealers, and then hopefully, hopefully we're all listening uh, and you know, and then adjusting as an industry. That's that's the ultimate. That's the uh, beauty of our rather insular. <laughs> um, incestuous, if you will, um, industry, you know, because um, over the years, and you and I have probably had this conversation over the years, right? We're all kind of buying and selling from each other. And, um, but it's a, it, it, it's a wonderful industry in, in that regard. But, you know, over 114 years, like you were saying, the company has changed um, and had to keep up with product innovation. And, one of the things that interests me is Elbico has had extensive experience um, both operating uh, large domestic manufacturing facilities um, and also, you know, importing in in large um, quantities or large containers, excuse the pun. So, you know, that's that's an important part of our industry. Um, like many industries, you know, we've gone from you know, uh, being wholly domestic to wholly imported to now hybrids. I believe most businesses are operating in, you know, hybrid levels um, in a global economy. Uh, and so I guess I, I guess my question is, what insights do you have as far as how all of that's going uh, domestic, uh, international? Um, how is uh, uh, importing, you know, and how how is it informing you these days? Uh, both from a business standpoint, an innovation standpoint, fulfillment standpoint? Probably from a supply chain standpoint, a manufacturing standpoint, that's been one of the most dramatic transformations in our industry and specifically Albico. Back in the back in the day, 60s, 70s, 80s, into the 90s, we were 100% made in USA, union made. We, you know, we, we did a big postal business uh but even public safety agencies required union made and then they liked it they preferred it and then that went away but again back in the 90s we had five domestic plants fast forward to the 2000s production was moving from the northeast right pennsylvania down south in in search of lower costs, which you know, we didn't do at that time, and that moved really far south. And eventually, now it's uh, really south and really east. But back in the day, we were you know, a union-made, five company-owned plants. I, I personally have closed three plants in my professional career, and I always say the toughest thing I've had to do, other than burying my parents, was look people in the eye and tell them that we're closing the plant and are losing their jobs. But but I have to say this, I always demanded of myself to be look people in the eye. You know, I didn't I didn't delegate that to someone else. But with that being said, you know, today we've become a global supply chain company. We have dedicated vendors uh, in Mexico, Latin America, Southeast Asia. We do about 20% of our manufacturing domestically still. But the, a lot of this has shifted to global supply chain, which brings its own challenges that we that you didn't have when you had your, your plants close to you and you owned them. I will say this, I know maybe one of the questions you're gonna ask next, or maybe not, but it's something I always think about a lot and have been asked is, 
you know, when is the industry coming back to the United States? You know, we hear this, let's bring back the sewing clothing business back to the U.S. And not to be pessimistic, but I really don't think it's ever coming back because of the inability to get a new generation of people to get behind sewing machines. And that's one of the things that really drove us transforming to more of a global supply chain. You know, today, the, the domestic supply chain, when it comes to apparel manufacturing, is inadequate to supply the needs. And I think, unfortunately, I think that's going to continue to erode over time because of what I just talked about. And it makes me sad, you know, because my legacy is, you know, I always loved walking in the plants and listening to the sound of that sewing machine and saying hi to people and, you know, exchange recipes and talk about family. That was tough. That was a tough time for me. And obviously really tough for people that lost jobs. Yeah, all the way around. So you're reminding me also that one of the biggest challenges that at a local level I'm always hearing and have heard for quite a long time is the dealer distributor retailer can't find someone to sit at the sewing machine either. And so even to just hem, so if Albico ships unhemmed pants and they want that law enforcement professional to come in, have a cup of coffee, you know, chat with them and, you know, get their pants hemmed uh, on the spot. It's a challenge because it's hard to find um, sewers. So I feel you on that and and am wistful, uh, same as you are, that could could we somehow as a nation, as an industry, as a, a, a trade association, somehow empower you know, um, an agency of some kind that would train a new generation that would foster this, that would encourage it. But then I stop and I think, well, but what are the practical ramifications of that? Can we, we can't realistically pay someone between 20 and $30 an hour to operate a sewing machine. You know, the garment, the cost of the garment to the end user will be prohibitive of that, you know, experience. So. Well, I have two comments to that, Rick. One, going back to the to the distributor and the lack of ability to be able to get skilled sewing people. I have a little plug for El Pico, if I may. You know, one of the things that we add value to our products is ability to customize. And we, we have a vibrant, flexible sewing area in our distribution facility in which we take product off the shelf and we can hem pants, add patches, add a variety of things that we do off the shelf for our customers. So we, we feel that directly. How do we, how do we hire and retain skilled sewers? And we'd be able to do that. One is we have a, a large Hispanic community in the Reading, Pennsylvania area, but we were unable to tap into that community because we didn't speak Spanish. So mm. you know, we've actually wised up and we've hired you know, management that's bilingual. And we, we're really lucky we have a really skilled uh, community of, of sewers in this community. The other aspect, and this goes in the second phase of the of the discussion, is automation. And to me, that's the future of any semblance of a vibrant uh, apparel sewing industry is going to have to fall back on automation. We've we've invested a lot of money in automated pocket setting machines, automated patch emblem attaching machines. I love watching those machines operate, and what it does is it allows people to become more productive. Going back to the question that you that we just talked about that you posed, 
is that to me, automation is the key. And that's going to be the savior of any semblance of the apparel sewing trade in this country. You know, you look at Amazon. What, what doesn't that company do? And I, I'm not giving a plug for Amazon, but they, they've uh, actually developed patents for just-in-time apparel manufacturing that they're developing as we speak. That, that's a fascinating opportunity in my mind. To, to retain and or bring back some area of sewing apparel trade in this country. Well, that's really interesting, the just-in-time apparel manufacturing. I, I'm, I'm curious what, uh, what you ran across that Amazon's doing. I'm aware of the program where they're stocking, you know, a million T-shirts uh, and they're decorating the blanks on demand and shipping them within hours. Uh, and so now there's millions of designs being loaded onto Amazon and people can order them. And so, and, and some people are loading the word security, right? So, oh, I could order these t-shirts and they can say security on it. And I have said to myself and others as well, David, of like, well, how long before they realize that they could be buying, you know, uh, um, they could be buying a shirt with pockets and epaulets <laughs> and, you know, doing on-demand decoration um, in the same way. So uh, that's both uh, exciting uh, and scary. So on the one hand, it's exciting because everyone has the same technology in the end available. So we can't all automate, right? Look at what happened with, you know, the automobile industry that, you know, went away, a lot of it came back, and in parts coming back, because not because we could now afford to hire everyone again, but we could afford to hire people to um uh, program and operate the machinery that could do it then at a cost-effective, you know, manner. And so, of course, there's the hope that the the uniform industry, you know, will follow suit, and and that that will be a, a path forward for us to have domestic production based on um, automation and machinery. Um, you've known me a long time. You know, I you know I love computers and the internet and all of that stuff as well. So you know, to me, yeah, I'm into that. I don't want people to be out of jobs either, but I want them to have different jobs. I think we need to evolve, right? We don't have, as you phrased it earlier, we you know we don't have horse and buggy makers anymore either, right? <laughs> and <laughs> um, you know, and and as Henry Ford quipped, he goes, "Well, I didn't make a faster horse." <laughs> I made a car. So, and then the other thing you said, which is really interesting, um, in that it's great. So Albico can hem and Albico can literally deliver, you know, so I give you a size range of waists and, and inseams, you know, and you can, great, here's a package. So, you know, you're going to go outfit a hundred, you know, law enforcement professionals. Here's your size range. That's going to work for you. Um, and now I'm starting to think, well, maybe at the dealer d distributor level, we have to stop thinking in terms of the sewer and start thinking more like the gap, right? So when I go to the gap, I see, oh, I'm going to go over the aisle. Here's the pile of 32s, you know, uh, who am I kidding? I'm in 36s now. So, <laughs> so I go over to 36s, I find my, you know, 32 and, and I'm good to go. I mean, do you see that that's Another possible future is that we just have to be a little more inventory intensive again in order to um, service at the local level. Uh, I think actually, uh, I'm thinking the opposite, Rick, in that with the capabilities that companies like Elbico have, it's, I won't say it's just in time, but we could provide a customized solution 
carrying less inventory for our distributorship. Got it. But but there's a delay because the the, the law enforcement professionals in the store right then, they want their pants. Correct. They don't want to say, you know, okay, so it'll be here in three days or, you know, 10 days. That's less desirable. You have different needs, right? Yeah. I mean, the individual coming in that wants to walk in, get measured and walk out with a uniform, you're absolutely correct. But a lot of departments buy, you know, place large bulk POs that's delivered to the agency itself, sometimes to a local distributor, and then people come in and, and, and pick up their uniforms. So it's a very, very need. I, I don't, I know some maybe lower quality products uh, or different type of products are, are inventoried with finished hems, which people come in and get it. We don't see that in our industry because of the, the high level of, of discretion of looking great, having a uniform fit just right. But along those lines, you know, I always think about this as the, the position and the function of distributors is changing, right? And, and the, the challenge that they have, just like we have from our end of the supply chain is how do you continue to reinvent yourselves and continue to be valuable to that, to that supply chain, to that process? could be stocking heavy and deep, but that's a discussion not for me to have, but I know that's something that people are looking at also. You know, how do you continue to reinvent and add value and increase value in this supply chain to getting to the end consumer? Yeah, that is a, that is a challenge and, and um, concepts we have to think about all the time. What's interesting, you're also um, now making me believe i wish i had asked when we were talking about this a little while ago but the concept of wide and deep versus um you know thin uh well narrow. <laughs> no. yeah yeah versus narrow and when you talk about product innovation how does elbico balance that how do you know this is an area we should go and we should start introducing SKUs that relate to this even though we're now you know, are we really going to add another 20% to our universe of SKUs, you know, or are we going to always try to maintain about this level of product and then, you know, roll off items, discontinue while we're bringing new on? How do you, you know, and, and you guys have been doing that for 114 years. How do you think about that in today's world? Well, yeah, that's, that's a huge challenge is managing inventory, keeping inventory fresh, keeping product fresh innovating, but also going back and making decisions and cutting back. I, I could say this, you know, back in, back in the day, it was pretty easy because, you know, you had maybe 25 SKUs, <laughs> right? And you made it domestically so you could, you know, get, get production throughput time in eight weeks. And that was easy looking back. Now we have, you know, 720 SKUs, uh, men's and women's sizes from, you know, extra small to 5XL, 10 colors of polos, instantly made in Southeast Asia, which is six-month throughput time. It is like a three-dimensional chess match. I am happy to say, and I think one of our reputations is that uh, people say El Bico makes your trains run on time. And that's, that's the highest kudos from an operational standpoint is that you know, with the complex global supply chain and you know, all these additional SKUs, we, I think El Pico does a pretty good job of its delivery 
commitment and satisfaction, but it is a full-time job. You know, I think of anyone, we probably spend the most time on that. Maybe at the exclusion of other areas, we need to improve what we do and execute. But I tell you what, it comes to what you just talked about. We, we are pretty locked down <laughs> on that. And not to say we don't have write-offs. Everyone does. But we, we, we try to maintain control on that. But it's not easy. Years ago, as, as an entrepreneur, and you've known me through a few of my ventures, David, uh, years ago, I thought I could start something for the uniform industry that was like an eBay model. And I had companies saying, yeah, that's great, Rick, that'd be great. I have all these holsters, and I'm sure somebody else will want them. And, you know, so we all think that, you know, we can uh, not have to write it off, that we can <laughs> find people or companies that, you know, that our, our, our garbage is their gold. It turns out that our garbage is pretty much their garbage too. So that reminds me of a saying uh, from a old CFO we had, let him rest in peace, Jack Campbell. He always told me, Dave, don't fall in love with inventory. Right? <laughs> every, every, he always follows what you said, right? You always think, okay, if we just hold on it for a couple of weeks, we'll find some way to sell it. Usually it doesn't happen, right? So don't fall in love with inventory is one of the mantras that I uh, was taught. I love that. That's excellent, right? Reminds me of, you know, the cheesy stock advice right, that you get <laughs> right. when you're when you're investing in the market. No, no, it's coming back. It's coming back. Um, so would you say that the global sourcing, timing, keeping the trains running on time, as you phrased it, is that the biggest challenge that Elbico faces these days? Or what other challenges um, would you say are are paramount? I would say that supply chain challenges that we talked about, we have that locked down pretty well. I think that's that kind of speaks to our DNA of being you know, manufacturers and operators. That's always a challenge, but I see the biggest challenge for Elbico is continue to be relevant. The industry, the, the uniform concept options have exploded in the past couple decades. You know, so instead of polyester or poly wool for a packet pants you have that but you have rip stop you have stretch rip stop you know cargo pants hidden cargo pants on and on and on polos right uh external vest carriers so really it's a case of just be continue to be relevant and innovate and that that's what we're really trying to improve on is is just taking it to the next level in terms of product innovation and not necessarily being uh, reactive, but being proactive and identifying those needs and potential opportunities. And then promoting the brand, right? We have some really new, relatively new newcomers to this industry that come from the consumer side of business. They get how to build a brand, how to, how to promote products, how to position it. We need to really improve on that aspect of our business, and that that's probably one of the biggest challenges that we have at Obico. Okay, interesting. Maybe you're going to tell me the same list, but so that's some of the challenges. But I want to give you the opportunity to talk about some of the exciting changes you think are are positive, like what's coming up that might be that that might have David saying, "Oh, you know what? I'm pretty excited about this." Again, I would say it's from the. It's always comes back to the product. Yeah, you know, which is which is my passion, and you know, we've seen tremendous uh, growth 
development of fabric technology and we've really tried to leverage nanotechnology right i didn't know what nano was until you know 10 10 years ago but on that microscopic fiber level the ability to transform fibers and fabrics to regulate body temperatures right to wick moisture away to repel fluids that's that's pretty dynamic stuff you know and that to me, that's exciting. You know, the opportunities on that. Uh, I I really think that you look at the mobile phone and what's happened with the cell phone in the past 15 years. It's just incredible what has happened in that field. I think the next 15 years will happen in textiles the same way. Maybe not quite as as dramatic impact on people's lives, but I foresee you know fabrics that are ballistic proof fireproof that regulate ambient body temperature it, i mean it goes on and on and a lot of it i don't even know but th this is this is what we see and this is what excites us that's very cool well we'll leave the science to that and we'll leave the um we'll leave the sociology work to you and me i guess right <laughs> that's correct <laughs> <laughs> for the listeners the reason we're laughing is david had noticed that both he and i had uh, studied sociology in college. And uh, what's interesting is I do think that uh, a, a field like that, though, does help prepare uh, for business. I wish that more business majors, per se, could study um, psychology, could study sociology, could study, you know, human behavior and patterns, because much of what you've described in our, you know, past 30 minutes is sociological and psychological in nature that you know you're looking for macro trends at a sociological level it was described to me many years ago where psychology is like standing on the street and talking to people and sociology is like going to the top of the apartment building you know and looking down on them and i think that as a, an executive and um that what i'm hearing from you is you, you know you're doing both you're doing these walkabouts Right, you didn't call it that. That would be like the Australian version, right? right. <laughs> You're doing management by walking, by walking. but yeah, um, and, which is going and talking to individuals. And then you've got this other side of your leadership brain where you require to be standing at the top of the building and saying, "Okay, well, what's happening in science over here? What's happening with all this technology, and how you know how will that help our um, our customers? You know, the end users. How can we make their lives better, richer?" easier, safer, all of that good stuff. Am I, am I saying it back right? Yeah, no, you're, you're, I will, I will say that it's not all David Lurio. I got a really young, talented technical team, someone that focuses on fabric innovation, you know, manufacturing, design. So I tap a lot on, on people's knowledge, but it excites me again to be I won't say I'm the one with the uh, conductor stick conducting, but it's just really cool to have that collaborative effort. But it's a it's a team of many, not, not just me. And I imagine your team is multi-generational, of course. But so speaking of college, would you recommend this? Uh, oh, is there a fifth generation Lurio coming on? And or uh, um, would you recommend, you know, this business to um, young people that are fresh out of school and saying, well, you know, maybe, you know, I have um, this management uh, interest or I have this textile interest or I have this fashion uh, design interest, but maybe the uniform industry um, offers me something that other industries don't. I mean, how do you 
Um, what would you say to young people that said, hey, David, what's this business like? Is it any good? Uh, I mean, it's, yeah, it's exciting. You know, it's, I would say I recommend it for not only, you know, college graduates, but also vocational people. It, it's changing quickly. And I would say that the industry is as much about, and we've talked about this, as much about, you know, branding, uh, innovation, technology as is about sewing a button on a piece of fabric. And that, I think that's one of the big changes that, that's happened over the decades and over my professional lifespan. So without a doubt, to me, it, it's only going to get more exciting you know, down the road. And, and But the challenge is, and I've seen this with different companies is that, or the industry is that the challenge is, is melding all those exciting things and the, the, the branding and the, you know, the marketing with staying relevant intimate with the product right and if you're not if you don't own a manufacturing plant and you're not making it directly in your own plant it's incumbent upon us to be very close to that product be it through the technical side i happen to think it's really important to have direct relationships with our production supply chain partners and uh not not only to know who we do business with, which is important to me, but also to to understand how it's made and what what things we don't know. And that so that's that's an important aspect without getting off on a tangent. But absolutely, you know, I see I see some great opportunities ahead. Any any other Lurios um, in 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 line? My business partner is my oldest brother Doug, who's not in the business. He has his own law practice and provides great legal advice Lurio and Associates a little plug for Doug's law firm but he but he has three children I have two children between ages of 25 and 32 and uh, we're just like I was coaxed into the business <laughs> back in the day we're, we're still developing that opportunity gotcha okay well, appreciate the transparency on that, and we'll see if the kids listen to the Uniformer podcast and have have words for <laughs> dad or for their uncle. Uh, well, David, I really appreciate you, you know, taking the time to um, to talk with me today. Was there anything that um, you thought I was going to get to that I didn't bring up? No, not really, Rick. This really, I didn't really know what to expect. You know, I've I've become a fan of these podcasts. Uh, but no, I just found it really enjoyable talking to you and appreciate you giving me the opportunity to be on this. Well, we appreciate you participating and we definitely appreciate your support of the NAUMD over the years. And we uh, greatly respect the Albico brand and your leadership and thought leadership and, and look forward to continued success, David. Thanks, Rick. Be safe. <laughs>